Welcome to Whisper Town, controversial topic discussed freely. My name's Anthony and I've got a special guest with me today, Stephen. How are you doing today, Stephen? I'm good. Thank you very much, Anthony. How are you going? Yeah, all good, all good. I'm excited for the first episode today, so I just want to get started. Yeah, brilliant. Looking forward to it. Good, good, good. So let's get stuck straight in then. Um, a topic that I've been investigating in my own personal time is wealth within the black community and specifically around first generation children of immigrants because there are some specific issues that are not really documented anywhere that affect the first generation uh, which which I call them and I refer to them of which I am one um, I am Nigerian by heritage. Both my parents were born in Nigeria. They uh, emigrated to the to the UK in the late eighties. Um, I was born here, and I've gone through the education system. I've got a corporate career, you know, management consultant by day, trying to be everything else by night. Um, like like all good but, superheroes, right? You know, you know, and. And I guess there's certain things that I found by research or found by experience that I just don't think is really discussed openly, really. And there are not many publications that discuss the acute issues that I think I can see um, and the challenges that progressive professional black people have to try and deal with uh, being first generation. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you on that one. Um, so like yourself, I'm, I'm also a British born. Uh, parents are from uh, Trinidad in the Caribbean, um, but I also have uh, a mixture of Chinese in there. So <laughs> I'm like, I'm like a Chris Tucker in rush hour. I'm, I'm also black and ease. <laughs> uh, so yeah so uh, again same same circumstances born here for from british um so from caribbean descendants um so i'm with you on that sort of first generational definition that we're working with okay okay good so i saw an article in the economist and it was written and published on the 28th of january 2016 as part of the Next Generation publication. And I'm just going to read a part of that article. Uh, it says, it was after the 1940s that Britain's black population really began to grow with two waves of immigration. The first, from 1940s to the 1960s, carried poor Caribbean to the British shores. The second, beginning in the late 1980s, came from Africa as wealthy Nigerians and Ghanaians arrived alongside 
rural migrants and refugees from Somalia and Zimbabwe. So that is a definition of the first generation. Well, I think against um, against that that definition, I think we've we've checked both boxes, right? So my mum would have been part of the first uh, wave from the Caribbean, so late sixties, and again with yourself, uh, Nigeria from the eighties part. So I think uh, we have some good representation there, <laughs> and some real life synergy. There you go. So I guess the very first question if it's not already been answered in that excerpt, is how do you define first generation? Because from my personal perspective, it's almost like an anecdotal reference that me and colleagues and peers within the Black British Nigerian community use to describe ourselves. But I guess you being from the Caribbean and you having sort of mixed heritage, I guess... Do you define first generation in the same way or is, is there any difference? Um, like fun, fundamentally, I wouldn't say that I've necessarily considered defining like myself uh, generationally. Um, I think society atypically does define everyone generationally. You know, you have millennials and, you know, the baby boomers and, yeah. and, and so forth. Um, but it's, but it's, Interesting from a sort of migratory point of view, how you regard yourself uh, generationally. Um, I think I, I probably would regard myself as a sort of first first generation um, because you only have the original, you know, people who who paved the way, uh, who came in the first instance. So they can't be the first generation. They are sort of the, the forefathers, as it were, and yeah. then. Uh, what follows from that would be the first generation. Um, so yeah, I think I think uh, I would I would define ourselves as being part of the first generation. And I think pick any pick any sort of breakdown. So even from a Chinese uh, perspective as well, you'd still have that first second generational sort of context. So you've just used the term that I am familiar with from my childhood. But I've recently learned that the term is actually supposed to have a derogatory connotation. And that word is pickany. (laughs) So can you you explain that to me? Because I went to school in a... What one might refer to as a white area so that school was in Bermondsey however a lot of the pupils within that school were from a multitude of different backgrounds yeah um and that was a term that was thrown around casually as a slang word with no derogatory connotation so yeah Yeah. I'm I'm genuinely interested in what your perspective is of that so so, like con- contextually, I, I I regard it more as a as a inoffensive sort of Jamaican reference when you're talking about youngsters, right? So you'll you'll, you'll talk about pick me, right? Um, and it just just there in a in a playful 
in in a well meant sort of manner. Um, yeah. So I don't think there's any any maliciousness associated with it, and I've never heard it actually used conversationally in a sort of derogatory sort of way. Um, my my schooling experience was sort of similar to yours up to a point, um, but probably differentiates itself. So likewise here, going to the school that I went to, you know, you un- unquestionably uh, is described as a, a white school um, insofar as I could count on two fingers um, the, the, the ethnic minority constituents um, this is from a junior school point of view, as opposed to yeah. secondary school, by the way. So yeah, so two, two, two individuals, myself being one of them. Um, so, uh, and even in secondary school, I think there are insufficient people who would be using pick me you or know, pick me in any sort of general conversation that would occur. Oh, okay. Okay. Cool. All right, well, I've cleared that one up then, so uh, that's good. So I saw on the Office of National Statistics a report. The report was titled Total Household Wealth Excluding Pension Wealth mm. by Ethnicity of Household Reference Person. I might have from- seen the same one. Okay. So from Great Britain, July 2014 to June 2016. And I'm going to be honest and say that I was completely shocked by the stats that I saw. Now, I'm just going to read some headline statistics. I'm not going to read the whole report because that would be boring, but I will be providing a link to all of the sources that we discussed in the podcast today. So... I'm going to call out three ethnicity groups. I'm going to call out the number of people recorded within the data set and the average, the mean average net worth value, so to speak, mm-hmm. or wealth value of the household reference person. So the household reference person is defined by ONS as the the main earner in a household. So, that, and they've used the main earner's wealth to dictate the wealth of the household. So, the first ethnicity is white British. The number of people who were recorded in the stats was 21 million. 425,000 and the value of wealth for that ethnicity was 166,400 black caribbean there were 179,200 people within the stats and the median wealth value for a black caribbean person was 46,800. And then Black African, there were 326,000 people within those statistics. And the median 
wealth value for a black African was African was fifteen thousand four hundred. Now, I have to say that I was shocked by how low those values were for both black Caribbean and black African, and there may be some logic to why black African is lower than black Caribbean, mainly due to the start of the wave of immigration, but the values mentioned for both communities, I'm very shocked by them. So I'm, I'm I guess gonna, how did you interpret them? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, I think. Um, so um, I, I apparently didn't read that, that article. I was thinking about some slightly different uh, stats, which I'll just basically touch on afterwards but the, the figure for african is uh that you quoted there was it fifteen thousand? yeah fifteen thousand four hundred pounds median yeah. like as a as a as a median so that's a representation of the 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 predominant earner in a household um, yes and i think for caribbean you said it was 47 just under so forty six thousand eight hundred. Yeah, forty. Yeah, so you know, just got forty seven for roundness of, of the conversation. Um, yeah, I, I'm quite surprised by those by those figures. Um, in some context, in relation to the population sizes as well, I think there's a, there's a lot to sort of explore there. So, um, so the, the white category. So okay, uh, the white breakdown so 21 21 million and change and with those the, their figures um black black caribbeans um here are you know uh, a minority against the amongst the minorities themselves so yeah. it was 100 yeah. and something thousand versus 300 uh, thousand africans which is what makes the 15000 against um the black africans the startling figure there um yeah being three, you know, numbering three times as, as much. Now, again, I think you're you're in part you're right. So, in terms of length of time, um, you've been in an environment to adjust to it and establish yourself and improve your situation over a period of time. I think yes. So the difference between um, the the Caribbean wave. Uh, up to the up to the late sixties, and then the African wave some twenty years later. I'm not sure if that's indicative of being twenty ish years behind the, the 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 establishment sort of curve or not. Yeah. Because obviously, as time progresses, um, your ability to generate income has has evolved in terms of the skill set and what you might be able to contribute or be able to find. Uh, work-wise, um, but the the socio-economic uh, circumstances again drive and dictate what some of these numbers would look like as well, and it would come down to a lot of it would come down to expectations of uh, the people that are here. So proportionately, what what is a meaningful amount, um, but you also have to factor in either levels of education, skill, uh, and opportunity. So in terms of uh, dispersion of the African population in the country, 
is it predominantly centered around London, for example, let's say, or is it spread out a bit further where there may be potentially less um, options uh, for, for young Africans or uh, Africans, you know, parents of a particular age coming over to establish themselves? So, so this is where I have an issue with the numbers, right? Just anecdotally, right? Because if I'm to believe that these are the facts and for the sake of this conversation, I have to, I'm going to have to then bring anecdotal evidence to the forefront just for discussion. Because if I think about my parents' generation and my parents' social group, they all came here and pretty much started from scratch. And they've spent the best part of 30 years building a foundation that will enable them to, you know, provide their kids opportunities that we might not have had if we were still back uh, in, in, in Nigeria or wherever our, our parents came from. Um, and over those 30 years, they have done relatively well in, in many cases, because if I think about, again, all my parents, friends and all their social groups, they all own at least the house they live in. And many of them have multiple properties mm -hmm. and they also have assets outside of the country as well. So that's a point of reference anecdotally that I have. And then I think about all of my friends and associates that are British born Nigerians. I believe all of them have professional careers and or they have businesses and the majority of them are homeowners. So statistically, these stats are saying, well, if you slice and dice the average, mm -hmm. you know, including what you've just said, it's still just 15,000. So the number I have to say, I'm absolutely shocked by just the, the the number in itself yeah like it it i'm i'm trying to i'm trying to rationalize what 15000 sort of translates into 15000 in terms, in terms like of in terms net of net worth yeah in terms of lifestyle in terms of affordability in terms of utilities in terms of cost of living in terms of you know anything meaningful and that's and remember that's against the household that's that doesn't yes. get that's not indicative of what the average occupancy of an individual household is um but imagine if the occupancy is three um and that average is still against fifteen thousand. that seems sort of disproportionate so the fun thing about statistics is is you know the statistics are only as reflective as good as the source is so yeah I'm not entirely sure what the actual source of this data uh, is that would uh, generate that sort of, the, sorry, these sort of numbers. So, and that is something I tried to look for because I had the same issue. So I deal with a lot of stats in my day-to-day -day job. And the first thing I always want to get hold of is, is, is the raw data because you can always present data 
in different ways. And I want to know what is inclusive or exclusive of black African. Um, do they have the statistics to break that down further by nationality within those broad categories? Because again, to say black African is almost like me saying white European. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so if I said, oh, you know, a white European person, what does that mean? Are we talking about an Irish person, a German person, a Greek person, a Romanian person, a Russian person? So it's very broad. And I don't think I would be saying anything sensational by saying that there are different capabilities within different demographics and there are some demographics and some geographies that are better at certain things than others um so not to segregate the community is more around well how do you slice and dice the statistics because even to say You know, I'm looking at the list now. We've got white and Asian, white and black African. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a natural it's a natural curiosity to uh, want to understand the actual sort of nationality breakdown. So, again, you know, you'd have a vested interest in the the, the Nigerian representation of of that group you know if you isolated that group does does that average um household income increase by let's say 30,000 for instance um but again for the period that it actually covers uh, I, I don't think it's even a question of uh, socioeconomic uh limitations that's impacting that you know in terms of either education skill level employment level um obviously you know, if you're unemployed, you know, do you have a do you have a significant proportion of uh, the three hundred thousand that are unemployed, which would then skew the average significantly lower against, as your anecdotal um, evidence, you know, suggests there are a significant number of well-appointed, multiple homeowning, um, you know. Uh, Nigerians, British British uh, Nigerians, or just Nigerians in general here. So it's it's a it's a it's a it's a tricky one to sort of categorically say. Then oh well, yes. Yeah. So the underlying reasons for this this figure is X, Y, and Z. Again, without a, a, a richer or closer examination of the actual raw data um, and its granularity. From, from the Caribbean point of view, again, going back to the original points about uh, establishment, um, starting from an earlier point in time, yeah. and, given, and given the size difference um, in, in the population, you know, being some sort of threefold um, lesser difference, uh, that, that average is significantly higher. So... I think I think this will be this will be one that uh, would set off a whole bunch of statisticians statisticians <laughs> curiosity 
to want to go and find this data and dig into it and see what we can find. Um, earlier, I had mentioned that I would point out some some other some other points stats that I had sort of read um, yeah. just just in passing as well. So yeah, go on. I was looking at some stats, um, you know, published by UK government that was looking at um, percentage breakdown of households' weekly incomes by yes by ethnicity. I've and, seen a similar report. Yeah, go on. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that it actually, you know, that it points out um, and, and makes, makes I think, some significant reference out of it is that um, for the, the, the ethnicity with the highest proportion uh, weekly income of up, you know, between three hundred and four hundred pounds, are blacks. Yes, I believe you're referring to the race disparity audit from the Cabinet Office, which was published in October 2017 and was revised in March 2018. Is that the document you're referring yes. to? Yes, that, that that would be the very same one. So, the three hundred to four hundred pound category, you know, fifteen percent of of blacks are the the highest proportion. Uh, of all ethnicities that earn that much. And I, I sort of wondered why they picked on that particular statistic. I think naturally it's to sort of highlight the amount of, of money. So that actually that weekly average income, because the stats include much, you know, many more sort of categories of it. And the interesting one for me out of all of that is the 1000 or above weekly uh, income band and what yes. what this, the split is. So if you flash forward to that from 300 to 400 to the up to 1,000 and above category, interestingly, blacks still re- now become the lowest percentage uh, ethnicity yeah. in the 1,000 or above. So they come in at nineteen percent, um, closely closely followed by Pakistani at twenty percent. But either which way, blacks are at the bottom of that particular. Tech yes, and league, and and it's, and it's quite interesting you highlight that because I do have some references to discuss from that same report because there were some powerful statistics and statements that shocked me as much as the wealth by ethnicity that we're just talking about now. And it's just making me want to come back to the actual ethnic, uh, wealth by ethnicity table because you've just highlighted another ethnic group. And I just wanted to, for completeness, talk about some of the other ethnic groups. And the reason why I want to talk about some of the other ethnic groups is because a lot of these other ethnic groups migrated to the UK over similar sort of timeframes. Um, and I'm just really interested by the disparity. I'll use that word as well. Just by making a direct comparison to what we would categorize as black uh, people and the other ethnicities there are. So I'll start off with uh Indian ethnicity, 
Um, there are 511,300 people uh, within the statistics and the medium wealth of 185,400. And just to add, add to that particular list, again, referring back to the same stats that I was referring to, our £1,000 and above category, Indians are the highest percentage proportion of that. So 42% of the of Indian ethnicities are in the 1,000 and above. Yeah. So it just begs the question of why the gaps are so la- uh, large where you have 185,000 and change for one community, which one may describe as a uh, an immigrant community, and we have another immigrant community, or two immigrant communities because they've separated them for the sake of the statistics, and uh, it's rate you know five six seven times lower um so that same disparity audit i think as you've referenced it i think we should pretty much talk about that in more detail now because we're already talking about some of the main points that struck a chord with me so in that same document there was a there was a statement The statement was, although pupils in the black ethnic group made more progress overall than the national average, black Caribbean pupils fell behind. White British pupils and those from mixed background also made less progress than average. Also in the same document, it says, of young people who took level three qualifications, for example, A-levels, In 2014 15, 91% of Chinese students stayed in employment or education for at least two terms the following year, followed closely by black, African, and Indian students at 90%. So, the question I have for you, Stephen, is there is a, a stereotype, shall we say, or a ideology that I'm aware exists within different African communities. And I don't know if this is a racial stereotype, for want of a better word, Mm -hmm. or if it's something that may actually have some resonance with the statements I've just read out. And I think, I I think I, I think I, I know uh, what you're going to say, but I'll let you spit it out. You, you, you tell me. No, no, I'll, I'll let you go. I don't want to second guess you. <laughs> so, so, so the stereotype is is the Caribbean community may value education lesser or less than, should I say, than the African community. And again, this isn't to create a segregation or to say one community is better than another. But the only reason I'm even mentioning it is because 
that stereotype has always lingered in my head from a very young age. And I have lots of Caribbean friends who are doing fantastically well. A lots of them gone through education, lots of them set up their own businesses, and there are some that didn't. Yeah. But yeah. The point I'm trying to make is when I read that, it sort of almost reinforced that stereotype. And I don't know if if it's a thing or if it's not a thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So from from the, the, the Caribbean community, uh, yeah. So it, it is pretty much what I thought uh, you were you were going to say. So from the, the Caribbean community's point of view, there there always has been that sort of disparity in terms of performance and education uh, between uh, Africans and Ca- Caribbeans. Um, it, it, it is a thing. Um, it, it is undeniable. So statistically, when you look at any of the, any of the numbers, um, it will actually demonstrate that. Um, and I've been involved in, you know, conversations about this again, naturally, you know, with, with my mum and all of, you know, her friends from that sort of generation, uh, about it. And there seems to be some sort of like genuine confusion around why um, a lot of Caribbean, particularly men, seem to fall behind uh, education-wise. Um, it's it's not going to be from uh, a lack of opportunity, let's say. So yeah. my schooling for my younger years uh, were in Trinidad. Um, so I, I lived there for uh, about eight years. So my, my early schooling was there. And having sort of experienced that, uh, I understand that a lot of the Caribbean's education system is based off of the older English education system. Um, so it's not a matter of you know education and the, the tools to educate aren't available. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, having, again, first an experience there for myself, having gone through it, it, it was actually, uh, pretty great. So coming back to England and going into school here, you know, I think I was, I was very well prepared and, you know, in a completely non-egotistical way, um, sort of ahead of a lot of my my peers really across the, the entire year <laughs> across the entire year so you know just the level that that was enforced in in school in the caribbean you know things like mental arithmetic and uh, you know the grammar and construction of you know sentences properly you know breakdowns of knowledge around what you know, nouns, verbs, adverbs, adjectives, uh, pronouns, suffixes, prefixes, you know, the whole, the whole thing. It was there and it was sort of taught at a very young age. So none of my experience in the sort of last years of junior school here included anything to that sort of level in terms of giving you the fundamental building blocks for you to be able to write and understand yeah. the different elements of, you know, of, of text or numbers. Uh, so 
And you can you so is so that it, a com- sorry to interrupt? So is that a comparison of the level of education you were taught in Trinidad being better than the level of education for the same year group over here? Um, I would yeah, and uh, and I would have to extrapolate uh, downwards as well. Um, so my experience of between five and you know. 10, let's say, I, I, I don't think there was the same, I don't think there was the same level actually here, just based on what I went through in that year when I was here. So um, again, back then I was used to, at the, you know, you, you went to school, you had all your different books and then you had, you had your homework for like different subjects. You know, that you'd have to do, you know, you'd get home, you want to go out and play and whatever and stuff, you know, you have your homework and, you know, things were a bit stricter with that, your parents were on it and, and so forth. And I flash forward to coming, you know, to to uh, end of junior school when I came back to England. And it's like, you know, got to the end of the day and it's like, no homework. And then I came, you know, I'd come home and my, you know, my, my mom would ask me, have you, you know, have you got your homework to do? And I said, no, I didn't get any. And then after a period of time, I think we both found it odd. Now, you tell me how many nine-year-olds you know went back to school after a weekend and asked their teacher if they could have some homework. I can't say I was one. You tell me which nine-year-old you know, because it was was what I was used to. Yes. So for your different, you know, English, maths, all of these things, you, you had your homework and here it was like, no, no, you know, teachers are like, and, and none of us is obviously disrespect, you know, being disrespectful to the English, English system and so forth. I was just pointing out my personal experience of the difference. Uh, You know, again, in my, in my year, there were, you know, a lot of very intelligent, um, relatively speaking in terms of our ages and how how intelligent you you know you were at that time there were a lot of people on sort of like my my wavelength but i'm talking about the entire sort of year as opposed yeah. to the handful of people who i would say on a on a level you know with me yeah um but yeah i, I that was that was odd. I, I i used to ask my teachers for homework i asked if i could to take home some of like the the maths textbooks and stuff to like do things because it was just unusual um yeah okay so i guess so we've got that then so we've got the education thing there and and we've just discussed this the stereotype and the statement that was in the race disparity audit and there are quite a few other statements which i think we should pick up on yeah so i think i think, I think work ethic is probably something well t- that ties into exactly um the the original point there about the the stereotypes that that the perceived stereotypes or you know may have some some basis in truth um about sort of caribbean uh, folk and so, that work yep. ethic maybe maybe 
one of them. Um, but I'll let you make your next point. So I guess linking into this now, so I previously would never have tried to categorize someone's work ethic by the industry that they're in per se, right? Because I think anybody can achieve in whatever they do, irrespective of what industry they're in. You know, there will be excellent performers in a industry and there will be poor performers in a industry, but the industry itself, I wouldn't have considered as a representation of work ethic. So what I'm referring to is a statement and maybe I am drawing conclusions that are not intended by the report, but it says in particular, 43% of black people in work were in public service industries compared with 30% of white people. Now, if that statement wasn't in there, I would think nothing of that. But the fact that they've put that in there as a statement, as a point, makes you and forces you to draw a comparison that's, from my point of view, well, I can't draw a positive comparison now because you've indirectly suggested that because 30% of white people are in it compared to 43%, that, that that's bad. Am I being hypersensitive to the statement or is there a meaningful message in that statement? Well, I think I'll, I'll, I'll go back and touch on the point about um, statistics uh, again, just, just to make my point. So what percentages do is hide the volume. So if we go back to the numbers uh, we, we quoted for the ethnic population breakdown, so you had 21 uh, million uh, white, 300 plus thousand uh, black Africans and 100 and whatever, Carib you know, black, black Caribbean. So if you start talking about a uh, percentage of each of those categories uh, working in a particular industry, then the, re the representation is quite very different. Um, yes. So 10% of 2 million, right, is more than the Caribbean population. Yeah. So, you know, uh, what was the percentage for white? The, the last one you just quoted, the percentage? 40, 30% of white people were yeah. in public service industries. Right. So if we're talking 30% of 21 million people, as opposed to 43% of, if you combined the Caribbean and African together, so we're talking under half a million, let's say, then, you know, it, it, it's a... <laughs> It's a it, it's a misleading thing, um, which is why I wanted to raise the point about stats there again. Percentages hide volumes, and it depends how you want it to affect your mindset. 
because you could view it to sort of say that, oh, oh well, you know, black people are bound to do that or that's all they're good for or maybe their level of education um, is, is, you know, limits their, their options and possibility. Um, but it, uh, you know, some of that is, some of that is interesting as well in terms of migration and people who come to this country, because I've known, um, people from different ethnic backgrounds who, who've, um, immigrated here who are doctors and surgeons where they, uh, originate from, but because of different legal situations or, um, lack of governmental arrangements with said country to convert qualifications and certifications um, for the relevant industries here have found themselves in either domestic services as a, as a means of earning money until such time as they can either some, in some cases retrain um, yes. the same profession that they're, quite very qualified in, um, you know, to, to, to get ahead. So um, it, it depends how you want to consider it. Um, so you make a very good point because I guess anecdotally um, there was a high percentage of, I guess, parent social group uh, growing up that were in healthcare right yeah. um, and that's anecdotal I've not getting stats to provide for that but um, that there was just a high percentage right now I think there were and, very, and that's fine. there were very specific um, rec- recruitment drives um, in, in the UK um, for that particular uh, area of work so anecdotal it may be but but based on you know, quite well well known initiatives. Yes. So, so I, it's the actual statement itself that makes me question why they've put it in there. Because are they saying that people who are predominantly working in public service industries are less well off? Are they suggesting they are less well educated? that's the right way of saying that or yeah go on yeah so you can you can infer these things um from that breakdown because if you look at it if you just look at it as a percentage and your comparator is just these percentages that they're presenting to you you would look at that and and draw that conclusion um just based purely on the percentages. Um, I think you and I and uh, anyone, you know, anyone who would be listening to this podcast is uh, of a su- sufficient, sufficient level of awareness to be aware of the fact that those, as I said before, percentages hide volumes. Um, but yeah, so it would be understanding what would the purpose of that be? Is it divisive? Is it to sort of indicate, as you said, you know, the, the stature or level of education or competence of a particular group by highlighting 
the fact that there is that disparity between you know that ethnicity and uh whites yeah um potentially potentially i would say but mm. i just can't work out why why it's there you know like like stats for stats sake or is there a message you're trying to give because i i'll read it again in particular 43% of black people work were in public service industry compared with 30% of white people so you're telling me that more black people work in the public sector or in public service industries is what the term they've used than white people. And I'm here thinking, so what? Well, is it is it is it a matter of is it a matter of so what? I mean, in terms of so instead of thinking that it's that it's some sort of slight. Because I, I, I'm, I'm picking up from you that you're sort of probably interpreting it as, as a slight towards black people, the fact that they have that higher percentage portion, albeit of a significantly smaller well, population. That slight, that, I don't know if it's a slight, industry. but do they want me to feel it as a slight? Does that make sense? Like, because I, 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 I don't know what the statement means. Okay. So I think, I think, it, I think it, it, it is just factual. And it's an interesting highlight because if if that is that is the case, then you can quite clearly see where people have sort of been focused, where black people have been focused in terms of, of work, uh, you know, and the areas that you're driven into. Um, conversely, it opens up the conversation, and I think probably either for another podcast unless it, we're going to class this as being part of the uh, race disparity education employment and housing section um, but it could either then highlight the fact that in private sector companies there is there an issue of availability of roles employability or any other underlying reasons as to why there isn't, you know, a, a, a underrepresentation. Yeah, a, a more balanced split between that percentage in across the industries. Why is it heavily loaded towards the public sector? So, is there something about the other industries that aren't public sector that that introduce or that have some sort of ceiling or some sort of limitation for? you know, blacks and other minority groups. So that sounds like a new podcast title episode. One episode in and we're already uh, creating, creating uh, future shows. I like it. Yeah, no, definitely. So there was an idea around glass ceilings for different demographics and not racial either. Um, So that almost sounds like that certainly will be an episode that uh, we'd need to do. So 
definitely we're going to keep that. But the point you make is very interesting because it's almost the the uh, the the opposite point, which is well, if they can't get it in the private sector, then obviously they're going to be in the public sector or in public service industries as they have described it. So, but then I take your point. And and at, at the same time, again, it it's it's singularly true of everyone, right? I mean, there's some disparity, but it's but it's true of everyone. So you're either going to be in one sector, one of three sort of sectors, really, aren't you? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. All right. So more statements from the same report then. Excuse me. Um, Sixteen percent of black households were in persistent poverty. So, persistent poverty is poverty that extends past twelve months. I believe is the description that I read in the report. Well, that 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 lines up effectively with the, uh, the 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 principal um, household income of Black Africans being fifteen fifteen thousand. <laughs> um, I, I imagine that would put you in persistent uh, poverty. Um, again, yes. as I said, that average is based on the the main. Uh, income generator against that household but doesn't but doesn't give any indication of the numbers in that household so yes. 15,000 divided by 4 for instance or 3 doesn't amount to a great deal so yeah so the next point i'm going to highlight is a very interesting point and i believe it's a sensitive topic for for many people the composition of a household affects the number of potential earners the amount and purchasing power of household income and the number of people to be supportive thus affecting living standards black households were more likely to be single parent households limiting the number of potential earners So this is a sensitive topic for many people. And anecdotally, from my knowledge and experiences, it's a real problem within all communities. But it feels like it's disproportionate in the black community. And I have a sort of scenario to play out. Yeah. Just to give a general random context to what I'm trying to get at. If two people have a child and they live together, and we are to assume that they both work and share bills equally, the total costs of living are halved if we assume that each person you know, splits it down the middle. And contributes proportionately. And and contributes proportionately. Now, let's assume that that couple, their relationship breaks down and they decide to separate. 
and but the bills and the liabilities associated with living remain and one person has to leave that house and let's assume they have to get the same type of accommodation and the same liabilities in their new place well very simplistically without doing any complicated mathematics you can almost just say that the costs of separating increase their liability by 100 percent right this is a twofold yeah yeah now the issue is compounded when there's a child involved because stereotypically the child would typically stay with the mother the mother yeah and anecdotally there are issues with financial support for children when parents separate and this is an issue in all communities but i am particularly aware of this issue within the black community and what can happen is if we assume in this scenario that the child stays with the mum and her costs have increased by 100%, that could cause severe long-term financial constraints, which links back to the persistent poverty that we've just discussed. Because the financial weakness of that single parent will impact every area of that child's life if there is not an opportunity for that single parent to double their earning power, essentially. So the long-term effect of that is the day-to-day life is heavily constrained and can limit what that child can participate in and what that family can now do with their current makeup and it constrains the mum for example in this example to be able to acquire assets potentially invest in a pension invest in life insurance and potentially creates a scenario where there will be no wealth to transfer at the end for that child I think that that sort of scenario is uh, a you know is probably more exists more than people are sort of comfortable sort of acknowledging because as we said you know as you said um, this is quite a sensitive uh, topic for a lot of a lot of people um, I think. The, the the strength of mothers is uh, vastly underestimated um, at, at at the best of times um, and I think you know raising children by yourself and I mean where we you know if you think about raising one child by yourself then think about raising two or three children by yourself yeah. um, the 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 effort required to 
keep on track of everything that's needed, you know, all of the basic yeah. needs plus ensuring, you know, children's safety, uh, you know, making sure that there's food and, you know, all of these things uh, is quite taxing. And I think we yeah. probably both know sufficient examples of people working multiple jobs um, to try and cover, you know, all of all of the bases, and you know, not necessarily succeeding um, a lot of the times. Yeah. Um, but I think you know the 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 crude math, you know, so you know, increasing your your outgoings twofold in the, yeah. the case of separation is is one thing. Um, there's the cohort of cases whereby there there wasn't that um that that second income in the first instance and it's always yeah. been uh that that struggle and a lot of things that exist um are subject to your experience and so the adjustments needed uh you know, change subject to the different situations. So if it is suddenly a halving of contribution towards things, that's significantly more stressful than they're never, you know, the or sorry, it might be more stressful than never having had it in the first it, instance. In the first place. And you yes. and you've always fought and understood that single unit of 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 revenue, of income to support all of the things that you needed to support. So, you know, you exist within that particular struggle. Um, you know what, you know, the, the old adage, they say it's, it's, you know, coming from nothing and gaining money is very different from, you know, being born with it to then suddenly losing it. Um, yeah. You can cope better in one direction than the other, but that's yeah. a, another topic. Um, yeah. But, Potentially, yes. So these may be some significant contributing factors um, around a lot of things. So yes. if we go back to the level of education, um, if we go back to you know that ambition or that drive, um, that work ethic and, and so forth, um, there may be some links with that. So if you know, there wasn't that drive from a parent, you know, or that supervision to instill that work ethic or to make sure that they stay on top of their studies because, you know, they're busy trying to actually provide food and work yes. more jobs. And, you know, you always have the cases whereby the, the child is sort of, excuse me, looked after by different you know, people because the other person needed to, you know, the, the, the parents needed to work to make yeah. sure that they could pay the electricity bill, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there are a lot of these sort of socioeconomic factors that, that drive some issues with regards to education and subsequent employment. And on top of that sort of, limitation in terms of that glass ceiling that you mentioned in terms of how far you can go then. Yeah. I agree. I totally agree. 
totally agree. There was one last thing in that race disparity audit that I picked up on. And I'm not going to try to argue with it because it's just uh, a statement which is is probably factual. Um, but it ties in with a lot of what we've already discussed, which says the households most likely to rent social housing were in the African, Caribbean, other black, Bangladeshi, Irish, Arab, and mixed groups. So anecdotally, considering where I guess I grew up in the early years and where a lot of my friends and people that I know grew up, um, I'm, I'm sure that that's that is representative what i want to query with you is is that something that you think will systematically change within this current generation or do you believe that the status quo will be maintained with that well so I think on top of those um, stats, is uh, interesting. Coincidentally, I was looking at the uh, English housing survey. Um, yes, and you know their their breakdown uh, just two percentages, just for for contrast. So yeah. they say that just twenty one percent of Black African households own their own home, compared to sixty eight percent of White British ones. Um, you know, that, that's quite a stark contrast. I mean, they were very specific in there and that that's black African. Um, I, I haven't seen any further sort of denomination breakdown to get a sense of black Caribbean or Pakistani or Indian or any of the other groups that you quoted, um, in the original, original stats. Um, but in terms of the status quo and the balance and changes to that, I think a lot of things are based on time. So sufficient time needs to elapse to see what will happen. But I think that there's sufficient sort of drive and motivation more so now, I think, amongst the black community to sort of get ahead and to get a bit more established yeah. um, that I can only see there being um, let's call it a tectonic shift yeah. i.e. from the point of view not being massive but over a period of time there being some realignment now you have broader uh, you have broader issues with regards to home ownership in terms of the 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 geography of the country so where are where are you most likely to own a home if you are black chinese bangladeshi indian uh other european you know 
white other white other European people. In, in, um, in so the urban areas? So you have, yeah, so atypically you have congregations of certain ethnicities in certain well-known areas. If we think about Birmingham, if we think about London, if we think about, you know, you have certain areas where there's a density of the ethnic minority groups that they sort of, you know, either center around or naturally gravitate to because there's an established community and an established identity. Um, we've all, you know, either heard of instances of people moving into <clears throat> atypically white areas and not necessarily had a positive positive experience of of that. Um, insofar as you know personal circumstance I, I i know of you know someone who moved into an area and the neighbor subsequently moved because they found out that there was a black person that was moving there yeah and you know i think a lot of the conversation is around the devaluing of their property um if more of a particular ethnicity move into it might be something that sort of some, something that acts as a bit of a blocker or would it be the case that those minorities would never want to move into such areas so so that's a very interesting point you've raised because you, it almost combines the ability to buy a house with the availability to buy a house and juxtapose that with the almost the sensibility of buying property in particular areas, right? So this one I could probably almost relate to personally, right? So I was born and raised in Bermondsey, right? Um, half of Bermondsey is, uh, well, most Bermondsey is probably zone two. Right, yeah, and zone two being the um, transport for London uh, zoning, right? And there's parts of it that are zone one, right? If you were someone who wanted to buy a house in that area today, and I've not looked this up, but I can imagine maybe a two bedroom flat mm-hmm. being, I don't know, I'm just guesstimating here. £500,000, £550,000 for like a two-bed flat. I'm just guesstimating. Yeah, yeah I'll look to I can, Hoopla. All yeah, right, move. I can, I can see that. I can see 550, that. 550 grand. Let's call it half a million just for, for, for the sake of easy maths, right? Now, you're going to expect the average Joe to fork out a £125,000 deposit for that. Yeah. And then you're going to expect that person to probably pay about £2,000 a month mortgage on, yeah. on, on, on a mortgage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, by anyone's standards, and if we go by the fact, and again, I don't know if the, the exact stats at hand, but the average salary in this country last time I checked was about £28,000 per year. Um, I think. 
I know it had moved slightly, but I don't think it had moved too far away from that number. Yeah. So, you know, you just do the ratios and that's how many times more than, you know, it's, it's certainly more than five <laughs> a times more their, their annual earnings. So what am I trying to say? Um, the urban areas that immigrants and immigrant children found themselves via social housing stereotypically, because I'm not saying every immigrant was raised or lived in social housing, but I'm, I'm trying to give anecdotes here. Um, the areas that you're talking about, let, let me just pick some out. Um, Peckham, Hackney, Stratford, Brixton, Streatham, Croydon. I'm just picking out random areas off the top of my head where there are people of black ethnicity or black heritage or whatever the political or apolitical term is to use, right? Now, a lot of those areas are in what is known as zone one or zone two. Yeah, some yeah. Some, some zone three. So they're in prime locations with regards to real estate and, and pricing in London, right? The average person, so let's forget about race and ethnicity for a second. The average person is not able to buy a house in those areas. So 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 there's two things, there's two options really, if you if you boil it all the way down. That person needs to have the ability to save that deposit and have the job to enable them to do that, or a business. Or they leave town. Yeah. They have to look for another area. All right. And many people have done that. Many people. And many people have left London to put down roots in areas where it's just more affordable and you have the opportunity of getting a more suitable type of property. So for that half a million, you can buy yourself a four-bedroom house, being no more than... Detached at that. Detached house, being no more than 45 minutes away from London on the train, Yeah. right? So lots of people have done that. Now, people have done that from all different types of communities, right? Indigenous communities, black people, white people, Asian people, lots of people are doing it because it makes economic sense to do so. It, it right? does. Yeah. It's like that, that, that urban spread, for want of a better expression. Yeah. But this is where the um, the suitability factor comes in because there are some areas, unlike the inner London cosmopolitan diverse areas of which many first-generation children grew up in, there are areas, some not even 45 minutes away from London on the train, who had never had other communities mm. or people of other ethnicities 
living, working, and being educated in their area. And that introduces, or can introduce, because it's not a problem everywhere, a level of xenophobia in some communities. In some yeah. communities, that may I'd agree with that. transpire into racial prejudice and or discrimination, right? And there are anecdotes I could refer to uh, that back that up. But again, I have no stats, so I, I don't want to hang on that too much. But well, there's the there's there's the there's the basic human condition, right? Fear fear of the unknown. Yeah. So, you know, if you if you suddenly start encountering something that you you hadn't previously, it's an and you have no general sort of experience, first hand experience of other people, then I could I can understand to a point, you know, so, some hesitation. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't default to sort of outright loathing of or friction or tension, but maybe hesitation or curiosity um, about people. Um, but I think that started even in London itself. So when these waves happened, um, you know, immigration waves happened at the different areas that we mentioned at the beginning of the uh, show, then they would have encountered exactly the same thing all at once on a slightly sort of bigger scale. Um, And I think there was a very good BBC series um, that, that highlighted um, a lot of the struggles of, of you know, the Windrush generation, etc. But I, I, I understand the point from a, as I said, I called it the urban spread. So yeah. it does make econ- economical sense. You know, if you have a two-bedroom little apartment that translates into a four-bedroom detached house a relatively close distance away from the city that you either need to get back to for work and, and so forth, then that that makes sense. Um, you know, if you look at America, for instance, so you can look at many shows that give you the comparative housing um, possibilities ranging from, you know, using the same value ranging from Manhattan across the United States. And you go from effectively a one, you know, a bed sit in Manhattan to what could be described as a five bedroom mansion in the Midwest somewhere, you know? Um, So, yeah. So sense, sense prevails in those situations. And then, yeah, so you've had, you have had some sort of a migration away from London in, in seek, you know, of people sort of seeking, you know, more really. Um, and all of the challenges that, that, that sort of come along with that. So you have, you now introduce a, a slightly different um, mix 
into the schools, into yes. the employment um, bit. I think, again, for where I live, um, supermarkets are supermarkets are interesting things. So the rise and rise of technology and how how quickly supermarkets gather, use, and apply intelligence based on what people buy. So supermarkets are a good gauge of what a prevalent what what prevalent communities there are in an area. So you will see an evolution. So if you if you see let's take Tesco's for example, if you see a large uh, Eastern Europe European sort of aisle section, yeah. that's going to be indicative of the fact that in the area there is that demographic <laughs> that buys that. If you see a large Indian or Black, you know, Caribbean or American foods section in in the Tesco, again, that's in, indicative of some of that, you know. <laughs> representation of the the demographic that that reside in the area um true story yeah that, that, yep. that, that is how it goes so they the they world react. food aisle will tell you where you are Break, breaks it breaks it down to you loud and loud and clear you're like oh, okay okay i see what we're working with now what happens if you see one of those particular sections start to shrink do you go oh okay i'm noticing less and less caribbean products here um you know are, are we moving away from the area or or what's actually happening uh interesting but we're segueing into a slightly different conversation again but uh for me you know i just wanted to put that in there because that that was sort of relevant really to the to the to the migration point that we're sort of making um and the challenges that are faced and what happens so the, so 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 a follow-on question then um in addition to anything we've already discussed is in terms of the home ownership item, what do you think can change the home ownership rate for the black community? And if we're to reference the English housing survey that you mentioned, what do you think is the one thing, if there is just the one thing, that could increase home ownership rates for 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 the for for the black African community and and, and minority um, groups in general? I think the 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 timing of this. Uh, with the current global situation is a is an interesting one. Um, so, given given what we're heading into, uh, my answer would be nothing just for the time being. Uh, but under normal circumstances, as I said, I think there will be that slow tectonic shift, and I think some of the earlier quoted figures, so that that average uh, uh, income, the fifteen thousand figure. I think again that that will change, or that's a misrepresentation. But that's subject to understanding the underlying data that they've used to draw those draw those figures um, from, because it's an average as well, isn't it? So yes. Um, but I think 
again, it's it's that increased sort of presence in industry that defies what the other article sort of stated is the predominant area that we'd work in. So potentially moving away from the public sector, so that 43% uh, that we quote, quoted earlier, working in, in the public sector, you know, I, 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 I'm, I think from a professional point of view, there's a significant drive for a lot of the black community uh, away from that area. Yes. Whilst at the same time, if you look at the NHS as an organization um, and you look at, at the um, ethnic breakdowns of your top professionals, so now we're talking doctors, consultants, um, yeah. as well as nurses and, you know, all the way through, through the levels, um, there's quite a high uh, representation, um, again, particularly amongst the, the sort of the, the Indian uh, ethnicity. Um, again, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm also touching on uh, stereotypes as well by highlighting, you know, Indian people. But generally, a lot of ethnic minorities make up a large part of the professional end of the the public sector, but yeah. um, I think you, you you may you know I think you've already alluded to some of the same things that I've just said there in terms of knowing that there's an increasing number of people looking at the private sector, um, looking at a more entrepreneurial sort of lifestyle, developing a more proactive yeah. mindset with regards to wealth generation. Yes. So so you've touched on you you've touched on something that's personal to me, right? And I'm just going to say it how I feel comfortable saying it, right? So in entertainment, in sports, in music, there are some very visible characters that are doing fantastically well. In, 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 in their individual areas, whether it's sports, whether it's music, entertainment, that includes you know acting and, and comedy. We have people doing very, very well. And they're very, very visible. There are lots of entrepreneurs, business people, um, Sort of professionals in every sector that are doing fabulously well who are not visible. So one of my favourite things to do, I like lists, and I'm ashamed to say I like stats. Um, <laughs> there's no, there's no shame in that. Well, you know, it, it's 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 not a sexy thing to say. I like stats, is it? It's not as sexy as saying I don't know, like. I don't know, I sold a million records, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, I like stats. I, I like lists. I, I, I like looking at Forbes lists. I like looking at all the different flavours of Forbes lists. And I do enjoy glancing at the Sunday Times Rich list. I just like looking at it. Um, I like to see <laughs> just, who's just at the top. Fun. Just, for, just fun. for fun. I like to see who's at the top. I like to see 
what their backgrounds are. And personally, to me, I mean, I've got two categories of fabulously successful business people. I've got the self-made, i.e. They, they came from nothing and they made it there. And then there is the, I come from it, but I, I doubled it, trebled it, mm. I 10x'd it and look at who I am today, right? I just like I just like seeing people's stories and I, I like seeing them. So this year we've had the Sunday Times Rich List 2020 published and I've done the stereotypical thing. I look at who's number one, you know, who's number one now? I looked at that and I looked through the list. And there is one thing I... Who is number one? Just satisfy my curiosity because I I don't necessarily look at it as much as you do. Well, embarrassingly, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, So I'm going to have to do the good old friendly thing, which is to Google it and... You're just going to have that. Okay. So, number one is a very familiar name. It's Mr. No, excuse me. It's Sir James Dyson and family with a net worth of £16.2 billion, which is a rise of £3.6 billion uh, in the last calendar year. Obviously, his source of wealth is how household goods and technology. Uh, we all know the Dyson brand. I, I sincerely hope that they haven't furloughed any of the company. <laughs> oh, don't start me off with that. Don't start me off. Uh, just for good measure, uh, number two on the list was Sri and Gupta, Hinduya and family, um, with a net worth of $16 billion. Uh, That is a fall, can you believe, of Six billion over the last year, and their source of wealth is industry and finance. Oh wow! Uh, tied in with that is David and Simon Rubin, uh, with the same net worth of sixteen billion, which is a uh, which is a fall of two point six six billion, and their source of wealth is property and internet, and the full entry is Sir Leonard Blaventronic with a net worth of 15.78 billion, which is a rise of 1.41 billion. And he's made his money from investments, music, and media. Um, So I I glanced through this, and um, it gave me lots of joy just seeing different people on there. Uh, Some familiar names, some... I wasn't f- familiar with. Um, I'm just trying to find one that did make me laugh um, where there was a name on there and their source of wealth was categorized as divorce. I'm trying to find. I, I, I think I know who that one is. So for a start, there's like a thousand people on, on the Sunday Times rich list, right? Of course. Yeah. Um, and I think I, um, do I remember that case now? there was and and it would be a it would be a woman and i remember that is that a stereotype if it if it's if it's if it not to be not to be stereotypical but (laughs) if i if i I remember this case at this particular if it's the same one 
Um, there was a lady. It's a famous surname. I've just found it. It's a famous surname. Oh, it's not going to be the one that I think it is. Um, I think that one might still be pending. The one that I'm thinking of, <laughs> they've, they've picked, they've picked the UK to have the, to, to go through with the divorce because there are slightly different legislations here around it, which would mean that they would get significantly more money and they'd be looking at a proportion split of a good few billion. Anyway, so you found the surname and it's a well-known one. It's a well-known one. Slavika Eccleston. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, Bernie's, Bernie's uh, former wife. So it, it did make me giggle. There's nothing to that whatsoever. Um, and that may be considered as a legitimate source of wealth. Um, it just, the categorization of it yeah. did make me giggle. Um, <laughs> no, no, that, that is quite a no- notable one. Um, yeah, yeah. So I guess when I was reading through it, I do this thing. That... I don't know. Actually, just thinking about it, could you could they technically call call that call that category investment? investing oh explain that one to me because that 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 sounds a bit salty say well how so so she an investment broker it's going to come down to exactly how long her and mr ecclestein were married for you assume well who knows I, I would imagine they would have been married for a period of time because I think they're they're children of a particular age, um, so yeah. In in mm, anyway, so, well, I, slightly I, off topic, but I mean, absolutely off another, topic. But slightly a, off topic, but th- there is another famous divorce that I, I I can't remember if it's been finalized. I've not been following it, but it's with our 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 our, our, our love our lovely um, Adele. Oh um, yeah where it's been deliberately undisclosed. Um, and yeah, we need to save that for a, another day and time and probably not for an episode, just a general chit chat. But um, yeah, I've, yeah. Sorry. I took, a, I took us off track there. Let's, let's bring it back. Let's focus. Let's bring it back. Okay. Let's bring it back. So we're looking at the rich list. Um, we're at, so we're so at the, the rich list. The, the only thing I know, the only thing I know about the Sunday times rich list is that, I think of the thousand, uh, less than 10% is from a ethnic minority. Yes. So there was a fantastic article that I read, um, was it last week? Uh, and it was, uh, written by Shinji Maririke, uh, of the Sunday times. And the title of the uh, article was called Why Are There So Few Black Millionaires on the Rich List 2020? Now, I'll be honest with you. Whenever I go through the Rich List every year, I do look and try and see if I can find any names that indicate that they're from a a, a, a black ethnicity. Mm. I do. I'm sorry uh, if that's shameful, but I do because I'm just interested to see yeah, that, no, if that's we have representation. That's all. I understand that curiosity. There's, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, that's just a natural curiosity. Um, so, I've read the article, and to be honest, 
it was very well written and it picked on the things that I wanted to know. Um, so I'm just going to read some parts from it. As with last year, the 2020 compilation of Britain's 1,000 wealthiest people uh, consists of 85 entrants from ethnic minority backgrounds. Okay. Um, in stark contrast to their Asia counterparts, their Asian counterparts, black people make up less than 1% of this year's rich list. The four entrants are Zimbabwe-born tech entrepreneur Valerie Moran, who, with her husband, Noel, is worth 200 million. Telecoms giant Mo Ibrahim, 859 million pounds. Uh, five time, I think that's wrong, it should be six time. But anyway, six I know time who that is. Formula One world champion Lewis Hamilton, 224 million. Did you and know that? Did, did you know he's he's Britain's highest uh, paid sport? Or sorry, Britain's richest sportsman. I mean, Lewis Hamilton made a power move a couple of years ago, which meant that he was his own manager, and from that moment on, he's been stratospheric. Um, I actually yeah. bumped into him in Coachella, actually, but that's a side point. Um, okay. So he, he yeah. he's replaced uh, David Beckham. As as uh, Britain's the UK's sorry the UK's richest sportsman, yeah, yeah. I mean, as a side note, Lewis is actually a goat in his own right, but we'll talk about that another time. And former fund manager Sir Damon Buffini. I'm going to step back and talk about Lewis and say Lewis gets a lot of bad press. He really does. He does. Um, <laughs> and we need to discuss that because it links into comments made by Raheem Sterling, links into comments made by Rio Ferdinand, links into Meghan Markle. So we, we need we, we need to do an episode on that anyway. But yeah. yeah, and then former fund manager Sir Damon Buffini. So obviously I've Googled all of those people just to see who they are, what they've done, and you know, how they were able to achieve what they've achieved just as a general thing. So, but I guess the point there is only four people made it onto the actual rich list. Now it goes on and it has further commentary, um, but it, it says, you know, a point further solidified by the fact that every black entry on this year's young rich list is a film star, athlete or musician. Although the likes of Anthony Joshua, Raheem Sterling and Stormzy are cultural icons in their own right, the absence of young up-and-coming entrepreneurs to match their enormous strides points to some deep-rooted issues. In the UK, according to a report last year by JP Morgan, just 3% of the venture capitalists in London are black, while 80% are white. Chuck Warner, the CEO and co-founder of Diversity VC, a non-profit partnership, feels the investment world is nepotistic and network driven now i've got something that i've said to my friends and i've said to associates and this is part of the reason i've actually wanted to start this podcast is i love the fact that we've got people from the community who are doing well in sports in media and entertainment yeah but yeah. we need to celebrate and we need to have more visible representations of 
big success in all areas outside of that. Yeah? Of course. Because we're always going to have rappers, trappers, and athletes being celebrated on TV. And it perpetuates, in my personal opinion, negative connotations about the community. And almost it subconsciously feels like that's why they're allowed to be broadcasted and, and considered as successful because in some ways they're only happy for people to be made to look successful if they're doing things or perpetuating messaging which some could consider as negative you'd have to exclude the sports people from that for because that's slightly different but certainly with music mm-hmm. there is that and I think a lot of it comes down to the, the the point about what it is you're doing. So fundamentally, what these different areas you spoke about are are forms of entertainment. So you're en- you're entertaining people, and I think as much money as you know the the rappers, trappers, sports personalities, actors, etc., make its understanding how much more money is made off of their success. Um, but again, I think things have changed. Uh, there's, there's a greater societal awareness of, of knowing your own worth and yeah. owning, owning your own brand to ensure that the the your value your net worth streams towards you rather than lining the pockets of you know some corporation elsewhere well i mean uh, that's a good point that's a very good point because most of a lot of the entertainers now are independent and they are earning the big money themselves and they are doing clever things like storms has recently done which is he's just licensed his music to um, uh, trying to work out which one it is, was it Warner? But he's 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 just got a licensing deal, so um, or distribution deal. Sorry, so he still owns everything. He just licenses or distributes it via um, a particular organisation. I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong, but something I've read. Tiny Temper obviously was one of the first people to do it properly. So the ownership thing. I think within the community, I think people get it and they're doing it. More people own the rights to their music and or they're independent than certainly when we were growing up when everyone, the big thing was just trying to get signed. So I yeah. think the ownership thing is okay and the success is fantastic. It's just I a diversification of... It's a diversification of that. And I've got another personal thing that... I think is what holds the whole community back. And I'm going to make some sensationalist points, which I don't have facts to back up. These are probably more anecdotal uh, and uh, just assumptions. Yeah. So, and and I want anyone who listens to this podcast or you or anyone to actually find out for me because I've tried to look and I've not found it. Maybe I've not done good enough research, but 
there are not many international businesses that I am aware of that are headed up and or founded by black people. Okay. Now that might be lack of research from me and ignorance from me, but I don't know. And I'm referring to more public uh, PLCs, public listed companies. So I don't want people to at me and tell me my business is international. My business. Is, yeah. I, I, there are lots of entrepreneurs doing fantastic things. I, I, I know quite a few myself. Yeah. I'm talking about, on you're, talk, the, you're talking about, you're talking the about that stage. Yeah, you're talking about that that global, the global. brand brand recognition or organization, you know, known known corporation that exists. So, so I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna reverse for a second. Beep, beep, beep. I'm gonna reverse. I'm gonna say, um, I'm gonna narrow that down to UK publicly listed companies okay. because I'm gonna, I'm gonna narrow it down. Okay, I'm going to just reverse a bit. I'm going to say UK, right? Yeah. I don't know any, right? Now, me neither off the top of my head. Don't know any. And that and, and that in itself is, 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 is one thing, right? But what I'm... I was going to try and take on a journey, but I'm just going to cut to it. I think there are systemic problems within the black community which, if left unresolved, won't provide. Uh, it will prevent the next generation from being able to progress much further than the current generation. Uh, so, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, with all the wealth that some of the community are getting and acquiring and building, what what needs to happen is a economy to be built from that wealth. Yeah. Because if there's too much private wealth, right? No, 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 that's the wrong thing. What I'm trying to say is if there isn't an economy, then nothing gets built for the community. So for the community to grow, there almost needs to be an economy behind the community for it to grow universally. There will always be entrepreneurs of every community who will just do well and their families will continue to do well and they'll just pass that wealth down. And and that's great. But what I'm referring to is to build an economy so every generation, that, that generation doesn't have to start again. Yeah. Um, so so essentially what you're what you're sort of getting at is establishing black owned like a, a black owned everything. So in terms of supporting someone coming up through education, yeah. setting up a business, yeah. funding funding businesses, yeah. providing providing legal support and, and so forth. Accountancy, yeah. everything. Yeah. Because until that happens, and I'm not saying that black people or Asian people or white people um, shouldn't use other communities or black people shouldn't use white people. I'm not saying that. No. What I'm saying is to for the community to grow, the, there needs to be an economy behind the community. Because if you actually look at it, 
every community has got that. And I think if you just look at it, and I'm looking at it sort of unobjectively in, in, in a way, like if you just look at it, every community does have it other than us. Yeah, and that 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 leads me to to to, to question I have because that's my personal perspective, which many will disagree with. Um, is I know lots of people, friends, associates who are entrepreneurs. Some of them are really really successful. Uh, others are just successful, and others aren't doing great. Right, uh, but what I do know, there's lots of people that um, are bootstrapping and they're self-funding their own businesses, right? Yeah. Now, there's no shortage of people trying to do business. There's no shortage of people trying to be entrepreneurs. There's, all you need to do is go into Instagram and you you know everyone is, is trying their utmost to to, 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 to work for themselves That's and, correct. and to start a business. Yeah, generate yeah. generate that income, yeah. Generate that income. There, 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 there's no lack of uh, participants there but what do you think is preventing the community for from being on the sunday times rich list why do we not have people at that level why why are we so underrepresented right because i've got my own personal view um and it was touched on in the article um that was written in the Sunday Times mm. is access to capital. Right? Because if you've got a fantastic idea right now, and that's all great, but you know the maximum you can get from your bank is 25 grand, and you're not going to get the 25 grand because for one reason or another. No matter how good that idea is, if you ain't got the funding, you ain't got the funding. And there's almost an ideology, rightly or wrongly, that, okay, you've got to save up all that money yourself at your job and outside of everything else to then find the money to then do it, but then still be constrained by the fact that 25 grand, for example, random number, um, ain't, ain't going to help you anyway. You need, you need a lot more than that. Um, and the access to venture capital, access to the angel network, um, a lot of people don't even know where to start, right? And yeah. I guess, yeah. I mean, what do you think? So, so the the starting point um, is education, right? So we need a we need a curriculum of education that focuses on other other aspects of. Uh, of, of business of the real world in terms of arming people with the knowledge that would allow them to understand how to manage money, how to access money, uh, to, to understand what an asset is even. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people probably misunderstand what, a, what an asset is. Um, Agreed. Even so far as thinking that the home that you own that you're paying a mortgage on is is an asset um yep. whereby it, it it technically isn't if you define an asset as you know the the direction of travel that the money around it goes in 
Um, so I think starting with starting with educating um, the the community, and again, I you know. Topically, we're talking about the black community, but obviously I'm not saying this to be exclusive to the black community and that, you know, we should only educate uh, black, you know, children in a certain way. But in terms of the disparity, it feels somewhat justified that there is a specific focus on that because atypically you would still have the the biggest influences in terms of how a lot of young black children would want to earn a living is looking up to the iconic musicians and sports sports people yes so not not everyone can be lewis not everyone can be jordan not everyone can be lebron not everyone can be raheem sterling not everyone could you know yeah. um you know, just just as the expression goes, out of many, one. You know, so statistically, you're 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 fighting a, a particular battle to reign supreme or be successful enough to live the kind of light, lifestyle that is idealized by the entertainment industry. So it's almost like a it's almost like a hypnosis that's been cast over people. You know. This is how you can earn your money. This is how you get rich. This is what you want to do. This is what you want to try and achieve. And I think even more so from from sports. And it's done in a subversive way in, in so much as the salaries that the positions attract um, are, are, you know, are the driving force behind it. But as I said... If you start with education, so if you start at the actual root, if you tell people about how to manage how to manage money, what assets are, about banking, about you know raising capital, how to access capital, how to get advice on 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 you know different different options, different means of actually starting businesses. Um, learning about what intellectual property is and and yeah. and the value of it you know a different type of education in terms of being able to be in a position to understand if you have that that great idea that you aren't starting from scratch running around necessarily reliant on other people to educate you who might in turn trick you out of some of the potential income because you're reliant on someone else to actually, you know, take care of yeah. that side of the, that aspect of the business and so forth. Um, but I, I think, I think that's a, that's a good starting point, actually education and what it is young people learn and get to know about because you're you're fighting you're fighting um you're fighting some you know, machinations that can't be stopped you're fighting against the whole global entertainment industry so sports music movies you know your your rappers and trappers all of all of that you know that hustle that quick 
that quick turnaround, that, you know, that one, that one thing that gets you that, you know, gets you that first million type yeah. thing. Sort of real, you know, high stakes stuff. Yeah. That's fine. That'll always be there. People will always aspire to that. But at the same time, as well as education, it's bringing to the forefront achievements um, by black people from a global perspective. Now, this can have some overlap if you understand the context of how it was done. So, for instance, I'll give you an I'll give you an overlap that I actually quite admire. Right. Yeah. So, if you think about the rapper Akon, so he was a rapper, right? He came out. He had a he had he had hits, and I think he had a lot of hits whereby he was the featuring artist on a yeah. lot of music. Um, and he was going along, and that was fine. It was just track after track. You heard all of that. And then, for all intents and purposes, this guy vanished. And you didn't hear anything else about Akon for the longest period of time. Yeah. But then, if you actually looked up Akon and try and find out, you know, on YouTube, you always have these series, you know, this person was famous back in the so-and-so, see what they're up to now, you know, type thing. So if you looked up Akon to actually find out, wow, he fell off the radar, what's he been doing? Well, if you look at what Akon's been doing in Africa, the different projects he's actually undertaken to bring electricity to many countries on the continent. Yeah. Right? In terms of a level of a, of an aspirational thing to do, this is an example of that crossover bit that I'm, I'm I would be happy to sort of highlight. Um, you know, trading a bit on the fame, but more so the actual vision that he had and the goal that he had and what he wanted to achieve for the people was sort of greater than the actual fame from the music, and he's been quite very successful at it. You know. That type of aspiration, I don't mind. Um, so, but if you find other, you know, you, you need to. We need to bring forward all of the the examples across all of the industries. So, from an engineering point of view, from an agricultural point of view, from a technology, you know, technology point of view, um, if we highlight those people who have been successful in a typically white or Asian even dominated industries, yeah. then, you know, those are examples of, okay, these, you know, so your sportsmen, your actors, etc. there they are. You could try and do that. But we also have this wealth of people who have been successful in, in other areas that we can aspire to. Yeah. So yeah. as a, as a, as an opening gambit, that would be what I would actually look at. So 
a sort of change to the education that you receive and just bringing forward a broad, deep portfolio of successful black people under these other industries, you know, because there've been many pioneering, you know, black, black figures in history and, and every now and then Hollywood decides to make a movie highlighting some of these people, you know, so I agree. Yeah, I mean, that comes back to my um, theory about developing a a fully inclusive economy because you would, in that scenario, you wouldn't then be relying on anyone to do anything, including highlighting the good and the bad mm. uh, of of everything to do with with a community. But again, that's probably content for for another episode the education point that you highlighted is is very important and what i've actually done is um i've done some work trying to find sources that might be helpful to people who want to increase their knowledge with regards to to wealth and finances and there's some podcasts i've been listening to um one particular one is is the pennies to pounds podcast which is really good and it gives lots of advice about finances um, the good the bad and the ugly and it mainly just advocates uh, financial literacy with, with lots of helpful tips so that's something that um, I'd recommend and, I, and I'll put a link to that on on the flystroke.com website and another reference for people who are interested in finances and, 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 and wealth management and, and wealth creation is um, there's a, a wealth manager called Emmanuel Asquo um, he's been featured on TV and he's done lots of interviews with lots of the mainstream media um, he's got an Instagram which is at UK. so that's T-H-E-E-M-A-N-E F-F-E-C-T-U-K um, he's got lots of content on his Instagram that uh, might encourage you. And I think he gives advice on, uh, on finances as well. So I'd recommend you look that out. And all of the information sources that you know we've discussed today will also be on flystroke.com. So if you log on to there after this podcast, you can have a look at all of the uh, sources that we've used and referred to in this podcast so what we'd really like to find out from you is what you thought about the podcast and what the comments are on the different subjects that we discussed. So whether you leave a, a comment on the, the podcast platform that you're using or if you go to flystroke.com, we'd be much appreciated if you leave a comment on the blog post for, for this episode. Just let us know what you think, what your comments are and what your perspective is. And, you know, we'll, we'll be able to, to, to discuss that at, at at another time in the future um so the next episode will be called the rat race roundabout so be sure to listen to that when that comes out Stephen, thank you very much for your time today sir no thank uh, you very much anthony, anthony for having me on it's uh it's been a pleasure thank you very much and uh yeah we'll, we'll, we'll speak soon